Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of November 12th through the 14th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well there. We're heading into the holiday season in a couple of weeks with the Thanksgiving movies in a couple of weeks. Wait, that's repetitive. Anyway, uh, we'll also go into the awards season coming up with you know the various awards-based movies coming out in earnest. So I've got to plan out my movie watching uh, over the next couple of, of, of weeks as well. Um, I was able to watch Eternals last Thursday on Veterans Day, and I've watched also all the Ghostbusters movies in anticipation for Ghostbusters Afterlife later this week. Um, I guess that means next up I have to start planning to watch the Matrix uh, films in, in the anticipation of Matrix Resurrections. Uh, in the meantime, though, we do still have our weekly numbers to go over, so let's hop straight in. In first place, we have the second week of the latest MCU film, The Eternals. It dropped 62% in 40,090 theaters, down to $26.8 million for a per theater average of $6,565. Uh, the running total is $118.1 million so far, uh, with another $147.6 million abroad, bringing the total worldwide up to $266 million or so. And that 62% domestic drop is about tied with the steepest non-premier access drop of the MCU thus far. Ant-Man and the Wasp in 2018. Uh, probably this is a result of the middling reviews, um, but it's also not nearly as bad as uh, Black Widow's drop, uh, which some had feared going into it with the lowest ever cinema score for an uh, MCU film. Uh, compared to other non-holiday films post-pandemic, uh, it is in line with Dune's 62% drop, uh, Venom's 65% drop, uh, that was against uh, No Time to Die, which had a 57% drop. Uh, so, you know, not too much of an outlier overall. Uh, weekday numbers had it reached the $100 million mark over about nine days or so, uh, which is the fifth fastest of the post-pandemic era. I also imagine the Veterans Day numbers helped. Uh, from the first Wednesday, the the Wednesday, the Thursday of Shang-Chi, uh, that one dropped about 15% from Wednesday to Thursday, whereas Eternals actually grew by 23% day over day. That being said, the Eternals to Friday growth was also less than Shang-Chi's Thursday to Friday, second Friday to <coughs> growth. Domestically, it should be able to make it to $160 million or so, which would be about a 2.25x multiplier, um, which is a bit low, actually. Uh, it is doing better in international markets and likely will hit $400 million worldwide, bolstered by those international numbers, absent the China release, of course. In South Korea, for example, it's on path to be the second highest grossing film post-pandemic. In second place, we have the big surprise, uh, emphasis on big, uh, with Paramount's new family-friendly film on Clifford the Big Red Dog. Uh, this one opened in 3,700 theaters to $16.6 million or per theater average of $4,494. This one actually also opened on Paramount+, Plus, but again, the number of users using that service are pretty minimal and don't really have an impact on box office. Heck, you know, Regal, who you know in the past uh, would not run films that were doing day-and-date releases uh, in their theaters, is actually running it in theaters, unlike Paramount's other dog uh, dog kid movie, uh, Paw Patrol, over this year. Uh, Clifford did also open on Wednesday, as opposed to Friday with Thursday previews, which puts its domestic total at $22.2 million lifetime. Uh, this one has been, for, had been forecast to make about $12 million or so for the three-day weekend, so a bit of an overperformer here, and until Disney's Encanto comes out in a couple of weeks, I foresee this being the go-to family movie for a while. Heck, it might even be able to live alongside Encanto. 
Uh, critics may not have liked it at 49% on Rotten Tomatoes, but audience responded well with a 94% audience score and an A on CinemaScore. Uh, no international numbers that I can find thus far, but it looks to be about $64 million from sources that I can find, which may not be possible to reach on purely domestic numbers alone. It, a 16.63 day opening would need about a, a 3.8x multiplier, which is pretty high. Um, though getting it is a kids' movie near the holiday season, so it might be able to get there. Other things have happened, um, like a small red puppy becoming a giant. Um, but if it does bring out overseas, it can probably get there for sure. Uh, looking ahead, I think these solid family-friendly numbers are boding well for other family-friendly films like the aforementioned Encanto going into the holidays with the kids five and up now able to be vaccinated here in the States. Uh, in third place, Dune sits in its fourth weekend, dropping only 29% to $5.5 million in 3,382 theaters, per the average of $16.89. Domestic total sit at $93.1 million, global total at $259 million for about a $354 million lifetime total. So to be able to leg it out to about $400 million or so by the end of its run, including about $110 million domestically. Pretty crazy to think what it might have done without HBO Max or piracy being a factor. Uh, desert power indeed. Plus, as we have noted, it will have re-engagements with IMAX in the first few weeks of December, both here in the States as well as in the UK, um, so even more large picture format spice self-flow. Uh, if it does get to $400 million, it will push Black Widow back to, to take the ninth spot on the global ten top 10 list for the year. Uh, fourth place for this weekend domestically goes to No Time to Die, dropping a similarly solid 25% to $4.5 million in its sixth weekend. 2,867 theaters puts it at a 1581 per theater average, domestic total of $150.3 million. Uh, internationally, it's made a stunning $556 million lifetime, uh, overseas to cross that $700 million work mark worldwide, 707 to be exact. Uh, that $556 million overseas numbers is the highest overseas gross from a Hollywood film post-pandemic, surpassing F9's $548 million. Uh, that said, F9 still does have an edge domestically and overall worldwide, but it only needs about, but No Time to Die only needs about $13 million or so before it takes the number one Hollywood film for a 2021 title. Um, and in doing so, it would move into the third place for the global leaderboard. Uh, it passed Detective Chinatown 3, uh, $699 million this past weekend as well. Uh, potentially, we're going to make $750 million globally, uh, should be in its play, um, and possibly even $775 million. Um, some other fun international numbers for No Time to Die, it is the first film in Denmark to cross a million uh, admissions uh, within 45 days, uh, soon to outgross their highest ever film in the market, Avatar. Uh, and then No Time to Die also opened in Australia this weekend to $11.2 million, uh, the largest opening post-pandemic to date, nearly double what Eternals opened up to a couple weeks ago. Now, rounding out the top five is Venom, uh, Let There Be Carnage, in week seven, with the best drop in the top like 15 films or so this week, losing only 12% versus last weekend to 3.9 million in 2,538 theaters, per theater average of 15.45. Cumulative total of 202.6 domestically, crossing the $200 million mark, the second film to do so domestically, um, and another 227 million abroad, bringing the lifetime total to 430 million, which puts it just past Sanchi's 430 million worldwide and hopping into the seventh place for the global box office for the year. Now, outside the top five, we have Focus Features' release of Belfast, Kenneth Branagh's semi-autobiographical black-and-white film that's lining up to be a best a frontrunner for this year's Oscars. It opened in 580 theaters to $1.7 million, 
uh, for uh, number seven and the chart and a per theater average of $3,068 or so. Um, another Oscar hopeful, Spencer, added another 270 theaters on its second weekend, though it also did drop 28% to its uh, opening weekend off of its opening weekend, the 1.5 million this week, cumulatively uh, 4.7 million so far. Uh, meanwhile, we are seeing a lot of films getting dropped theaters. Uh, Antlers and Last Night in Soho are in week three, and they lost 975 and 1675 theaters respectively. And Halloween Kills, which is you know in its fifth weekend or so, lost uh, 11 uh, 1104 theaters this weekend. And then finally, Sanchi is now at 224.3 million and is just barely shy of 225 million uh, domestically at this point. So hopefully, we'll get over there this week. Uh, overall, total box office sits, sits, box office sits at sixty eight point eight million this uh, this week, uh, down from last week, as well as also down from twenty nineteen, where uh, Ford versus Ferrari was the opening film of the week at thirty one million dollars, on top of a hundred and eight million dollar box office. Uh, looking forward to the next this coming next weekend. Um, in addition to a bunch of stuff coming to Netflix, I'm looking for and forward to, including the, the Cowboy Bebop live action as well as Tick Tick Boom. Uh, we've got two wide releases in theaters: um, Ghostbusters Afterlife from Sony and then King Richard from Warner Brothers. The latter being, of course, an HBO Max day and date release. Uh, Netflix is also going to have the limited release of awards favorite The Power of Dog, though we likely won't get any numbers for that. Uh, King Richard is forecast to open the five to ten million dollars opening, uh, according to box office pros. Um, another, again, it's another awards-made film, though. I I think King Richard has the potential to do a little bit more, given Will Smith's appeal. Though, again, you know, we do have box. It is an HBO Max release and it is geared toward an older audience, so we'll see. Uh, um, who knows? Maybe it'll have a little bit more legs with the holidays coming up. Um, Box Office Post also has Ghostbusters Afterlife opening the 40 to $60 million next weekend. Uh, me and my wife are going to be some of those. We have tickets for Friday night. And then apparently, the number one film in the world for 2021, Battle of Lake Changjin from China, is finally getting a U.S. release this weekend, though I wouldn't expect it to do that much. Um, anyway, looking forward a little bit further into the holiday season, Thanksgiving week we have Encanto from Disney, House of Gucci from United Artists as the major releases, and then a couple others like Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City from Sony, and For, for the Love of, of Money releasing over the holiday weekend. Now, there's not a lot of international news worth reporting on. I think, you know, the Netherlands might be going into a partial lockdown, but I'm not sure that includes movie theaters. Um, but, you know, going back to Lake Changjin in China, for the first time since its debut at the start of October, Lake Changjin is no longer in the China top two, uh, for the week at least. Uh, in first place this week, we have the local period mystery Be Somebody, uh, opening to $21.8 million. Uh, in second place, biopic Anita, about Hong, Kwa- Hong Kong uh, cantopop diva Anita. Nida Mori opened to $6.3 million. Uh, in third place is Lake Changjin, making $4.8 million this weekend, now sitting at $883 million lifetime. Uh, fourth place goes to James Bond, No Time to Die, making $4.3 million to add to a $57.9 million regional total in its third weekend. And then in fifth place, we have another Hollywood film opening, Jungle Cruise, you know, the one from Disney. Um, for a superstar who supposedly is big in China, The Rock kind of disappointed, opening to only $3.2 million opening weekend. Now, obviously, I think this is mostly due to the fact that it opened nearly half a year ago at this point on Disney Plus with the end date release. So anyone who wanted to see it, China probably already has at this point with high definition version available. Uh, the reception was pretty decent, honestly, on Maoyan with 8.9, which is similar to what Bond had. But again, you know, the piracy didn't help here. 
Anyway, those are the numbers. As far as looking beyond the numbers, uh, there are a couple of categories to make our way through. Uh, first up on streaming, we have Disney Plus missing Wall Street expectations, uh, only going up to 118 million subscribers worldwide when expectations for this quarter were about 126 million. Uh, that's only about a 2 million user gain uh, as of Disney Plus Day. Uh, speaking of, I know last week there were a ton of announcements about what's coming to the platform this year and next year, um, you know, like they did, you know, about a year ago. Um, that said, you know, last year I did a whole episode on Disney Plus Day and the announcements because, hey, we didn't have a box office. There wasn't really much else to cover. That was an hour and a half long episode. Uh, with the fact that we have box office numbers now, I don't really feel compelled to go into all the details and list it all out. Um, you know, I think the important thing for the box office here is that no news that they're planning on going back to Premiere Access. If there are movies they announced, they are going directly to Disney Plus and not going to have a split hybrid theatrical model. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it at this point. Um, you know, also apparently, you know, another thing related to all this hot star, the Indian brand of Disney Plus is responsible for about 37% of local uh, global subscriptions. I anticipate where Disney's going to see the most growth in Disney Plus will probably be in international markets at this point. I feel like they kind of have market saturation domestically at this point. Um, though that being said, there is an argument also that Disney might need to increase its variety of offerings on Disney Plus beyond the family-friendly content that Bob Iger was pushing for. But we'll see how that develops over the next couple of months and years. Uh, moving over to the Netflix side of things for streaming, uh, despite middling reviews from critics, uh, Red Notice, their heist film starring Ryan Reynolds, Gal Gadot, and The Rock, had the biggest op biggest opening day in Netflix history, according to Samba TV, who may, be, may not be good for figuring out exactly how many people watched it, but at least is a good point of comparison for internal metrics. Uh, you know, They measured 4.2 million households, which actually is the highest viewed film of the post-pandemic era um, within the first day. Uh, the previous one, or maybe over the weekend, uh, the previous record holder was Mortal Kombat on HBO Max, which, as we know, is the highest seen film on HBO Max, according to what they've reported. Uh, moving on with Apple TV Plus, uh, Tom Hanks beats himself uh, with sci the sci-fi film Finch uh, being the platform's new most-watched film. Um, you know, dethroning himself in his own war film, Greyhound, from last year. Uh, for HBO Max, or I guess more broadly Warner Media, there is also a report that the upcoming CEO uh, from Discovery, who's going to be taking over the company, will be moving to LA in order to be more hands with the talent. Uh, speaking of talent and, you know, I guess the business of movie making, uh, there was a study this week from the California Film Commission that pandemic-related safety protocols add about 5% to the cost of film and television production budgets, though anecdotal evidence suggests that the true number is close to about 15% or so. However, producers are potentially, you know, talking about being hands-on, uh, wanting to be more involved in making sure that their uh, actors and actresses and everyone on the crew are man are vaccinated. And, you know, there are cases where actors are starting to walk away, um, such as Ice Cube in the recent film. I think the biggest, you know, example of how these, these COVID costs are, are potentially costing uh, film studios and why they, they might move to vaccinated-only actors at this point, uh, Leticia White on Black Panther 2, uh, presumably she isn't vaccinated due to her uh, anti Vax statements she's showed online, uh, but after she got injured on set, you know, of filming Black Panther 2, she returned back to London, um, and then, you know, now she may not be able to fly back across the Atlantic due to regul federal regulations that non-U.S. citizens, which she's not a U.S. citizen, uh, need to be fully vaccinated before getting on a plane to the U.S., uh, so who knows how that's going to affect the production of Black Panther 2, if they'll need to write her out of the story or not. 
Um, also, not vaccine-related, but Marvel-related, apparently Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness is doing about six weeks uh, worth of uh, six, six weeks of six-day weeks um, of, of resuits uh, for the rest of the year, which seems like a lot, honestly. Um, I'm not sure if that's something indicating wrong with the project. It seems like they're going to be keeping uh, it on track, but this could definitely impact the profitability, um, assuming you know we, we don't see much. Who am I kidding? It's Marvel. There's going to be profitable on these films, probably. Um, Especially if you know No Way Home has its way, which we'll talk, we'll mention that in a little bit. Uh, also, before that, real quick though, the IATSE negotiations from a while back, which had a you know agreement between the studios and the uh, and the guild um, or the union, uh, you know they they came they narrowly averted a strike. You know, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, um, the 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 union ended up having a final vote, uh, electoral college delegate style, with two fifty six delegates in favor of the basic agreements. Uh, and 188 delegates voting no, which is actually fairly close. Um, you know, the, nec- the next three years of production are covered for now. But again, interestingly, this is an electoral solid style vote. Style vote. If you ask the individual members of the union, about 50.4 percent were against, and 49.6 percent were for the agreement. But the the electoral process, uh, you know, kind of took precedence here. So really interesting, just how split uh, this particular basic agreement ended up being. Uh, some movie titles and adjustments to for theatrical dates coming up. Again, ignoring the Disney Plus Day announcements. Uh, in the UK, No Way Home will release two days earlier, December 15th, uh, which is pretty interesting that they're doing it early in December. I wonder if we're going to be able to get that uh, in China, for uh, for example. Um you know, and and as I, by the way, as I am recording and writing this episode, the trailer, the latest trailer for No Way Home came out, and you know, not going to go into the full statement, but uh, 1.7 million views in the first five minutes of it being up, kind of insane. Uh, anyway, uh, Paramount pushed Transformers: Rise of the Beasts uh, back from June 24th, 2022, all the way a year to June 9th, 2023. Uh, this means that the Star Trek film in development that was previously dated for 2023, uh, June, is getting pushed back to December 22nd, 2023. Uh, this move uh, of the Transformers film off of June 2022 uh, means that uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis biopic for uh, Warner Brothers is actually going to move back from June 3rd back to June 24th. Um, I think this is in an effort in order to avoid uh, the May 27th weekend, which has uh, Top Gun Maverick and John Wick Chapter 4, um, you know, opening just before that. So hopefully this gives it a little bit more time. Uh, the other competition it would have on June 24th, um, no competition currently. It would be a week after Lightyear, which I don't think is the exact same audience for that. Uh, also, super crazy, far away, but uh, apparently John M2 is going to adapt Doctor Seuss's All the Places you can go, You'll Go as an animated film for 2027. So six years out. Um, anyway, uh, speaking of that other star franchise, uh, despite efforts, reports last week that Chloe Zhao might be directing Kevin Feige's Star Wars films, those seem to be debunked from insiders. Uh, insiders also reported, according to uh, Matt Bologna, uh, that uh, Patty Jenkins' Rogue Squadron film allegedly was solved not only because of you know uh, timing and whatnot, but also creative differences at this point. So who knows what they're doing over at Star Wars. Honestly, they just made more Star Wars versions. I'd be happy with that. Um, and then also, Jason Momoa and Dave Bautista are apparently working on an untitled body cop action film that they were shopping around town, and MGM ended up picking it up. 
Uh, that transitions us to the back-end business side of things, uh, you know, more on the corporate side. Apparently, MoviePass is coming back. Uh, co-founder Stacey Spikes bought the company uh, in a bankruptcy auction from its previous owner um, and, you know, has plans to revive the brand. Uh, no idea details for what that's going to look like yet. I'm just, you know, I, MoviePass, I think, has had its day. Um, definitely appreciate what it did in getting more people used to watching movies and encouraging AMC to, you know, launch an AMC A-list type program. Uh, but who knows if how MoviePass is going to come back. Uh, I just want to see what it tries to do. Um, anyway, Unity, the game engine company, is buying Peter Jackson's Weta Digital for $1.63 billion. Uh, not the whole Weta company that does the special effects for you know, Lord of the Rings films, just a digital component, uh, presumably to make use of their filmmaking VFX technology uh, for their games. It's uh, STX Entertainment is planning on being sold to a third party. No price giving. Uh, STX was focused on low to mid-budget films. I think the most notable of which was Hustlers a few years back. Um, in an age of either hyper-cheap horror films or big blockbusters and not much in between, I don't think there was a really fit for them in the market anymore and other companies like them. Uh, this was after a merger with Eros International sometime in 2020. And if we dare get into the NFT space, Quentin Tarantino apparently was planning on having an NFT sale based on Pulp Fiction, but Miramax, the rights holder company, uh, sent a cease and desist to the director. I swear this won't turn into a crypto podcast, but it is interesting to see yet another means of monetization of films, uh, which I guess is in the purview of this podcast. Tarantino related though I will say he had a nice segment on the Colbert show about why he found the, the theatrical experience so special um, I personally resonated with it maybe you didn't maybe you did um, but if you haven't checked it out definitely recommend watching, watching that in any case, before we wrap up the show, uh, let's go to what I've been watching this week. Two, two mini-reviews and one big review this week. Uh, the first mini-review, last week I watched Ghostbusters 1 in preparation for Afterlife. Uh, and this week I watched Ghostbusters 2. Definitely a bit of a weaker film than the first one. You know, The ending in particular was kind of rushed. Um, the romance between Sigourney Weaver and Bill Murray made even less sense to me than before. Um, but you know, I will say it still had a lot of heart overall, which I think is like really what this film is about. And definitely some comedic moments as well um overall give it a three out of five uh, the second mini review, Rent, uh, the 2005 film version. Watch this one in anticipation of the upcoming Tick, Tick, Boom film later this year, uh, which is adapting a musical by the same director as uh, the Rent uh, Broadway, or the creator of the Rent Broadway play. Um, I had heard some of the songs from Rent before, but never watched the whole recording of the stage production. Uh, my wife is a pretty big musical theater nerd and loved Rent, so I got a bit of a running commentary about who had returned from the original stage production and so on. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed it. It definitely felt like a fun film striking that balance of that magical nature of the theater where everything is just so heightened and people just break into song um, and you can just go with it, but also taking advantage of the set expansions that you get to do in film. For obvious reasons, it reminded me a lot of In the Heights, you know, another great musical film about New York community who sees their way of life changing, especially after the matriarch passes, but, you know, they find a way to move forward because they have each other and love each other, and, it's, you know, the middle part drags on a little bit in both films, but hey, overall, um, I think this is definitely, this is definitely, I can see why Rent was such a phenomenon when it came out. Um, I will say the latter half, after Levi Bohem, definitely felt a little bit rushed in terms of its, its development, its characterization. I think, you know, I could see, I could visualize how it would have been done on screen and I think it it, it would probably have translated more on screen than it would have than it did on on, on TV um, but you know I, I don't know if that's about the, the and 
but I, I think it's still, you know, I, if that's how it was in the film, I guess I can understand it. I will also say, I don't know if this is more about the film and how it did things or uh, more about what it says about me as who I am in my life, but honestly, the character I felt most sympathetic with was probably Benny the Landlord. Um, again, what does that say about me? Anyway, overall, Rent 2005, give it four out of five stars. And finally, the main review, Eternals. I got to see it Thursday in a decently full theater. Um, I'll admit I haven't seen much of Chloe Zhao's work aside from Nomadland, but from what I saw there, what I think C and Art House in general is really good at is making the people you are with for two hours you know, on screen feel like fully realized 3D people. Like you're seeing just this one excerpt of, of a long life they've had there's clearly a whole history behind these people that the actors and the director and the writing were able to bring to life through dialogue and so on very much so not tell very much things hinted at hint at like the wider three-dimensionality of a, of a character and for chloe's out specifically she marries that with you know beautiful meditative cinematography that's a bit far from a typical MCU film where a lot of things are kind of told at you instead of sewn at you, especially for the audience who you know need the the superhero, the super uh, the super powered elements explained to them, especially in origin story type films. And in the cinematography is anything but meditative. It's very frenetic, very action packed. Planet Mary Two was always going to be a lofty ambition, and you know I think there are hints of what she tries to do in, in building these characters up to be more three dimensional and having this long life lived before when we see them on screen. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, I don't think, I think Chloe's out took a bit of a too big of a bite here. Uh, first off, trying to build the lives of, you know, not one or two or even five characters, but 10 characters overall. That's a lot. Um, trying to build the lives of, you know, normal people is in, in, of normal humans like us is, an, is a big challenge in and of itself. Trying to do it for people who have lived for millennia at a time and have to grapple with the fact that they're immortal and, you know, how do they relate to humanity? That's a whole other challenge on top of that. Um, and on top of that, you have to explain all the superhero world building, what their superpowers are, the alien world they came from, how they lived immortal and what it did to them and so on, right? Like that all stuff... And also adding in the action sequences as well, which definitely don't match with the, the slow, pensive cinematography they tried to insert in there. I can't say I'm fully surprised it didn't work out, even though I wish it had. Uh, the biggest victim of this, I think, was the pacing, which simultaneously felt very rushed. Like, there are these characters, we introduced to them very quickly, we get a little bit of development, and then, oh, there's supposed to be this big emotional climactic moment about 20 minutes in, and it's like okay, I knew you for 20 minutes. I don't really feel that invested to have this like, oh, that's so touching, right? That felt really rushed. But at the same time, it also felt dragged on, right? Like it's a two and a half hour film and I found myself checking my phone after the first 30 minutes and about every 30 minutes afterwards just to see how long it was before, the, you know, how long would it been? It felt kind of dragged out. This wasn't helped by the dialogue, which was kind of iffy, a little bit jilted for me and a little bit clunky, you know, trying to marry the emotional delivery with alien techno babble, right? Um, the framing of the group shots, I, I think kind of so that Chloe Zhao wasn't as good at the group shots. I think he, he was best in like the one-on-one -on -one conversations between characters. Those were framed, I think, and, and, and directed really well, I think. Um... But yeah, I, 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 that's it. I think the actors did give it their all. In particular, I think the characters of Kingo, played by Kumail Nanjiani, Gilgamesh by Don Lee, Thina by Angelina Jolie, and Fastos by, by Brian Tyree Henry, also that I think as the best acted characters in here. Kind of as we got a little bit more of Kit Harrington, but I guess that's setting up for the sequel. Um, also, Kingo's valet Karun, played by Harish Patel, is my absolute favorite character from the film for sure. Uh, still, overall, I think the Eternals were kind of hard to relate to. Again, I can relate to a 
talking raccoon and a walking walking tree. So I you think I could relate to anyone, but I couldn't hear. Um, again, maybe the fact that these are millennia old aliens who don't really have like they have a sense of humanity, but then again they don't really don't because they're supposed to be separate from humanity. Whereas you know Rocket and Groot are very much they're flawed. Even if they're alien, they're very human characters, right? Um, I, I didn't. I, I. I. don't think you do the good job of making you feel invested in the characters, um, and and being able to relate to the characters, right? Um, so yeah, and and, and some of the actions they took were frankly, uh, frankly, uh, kind of baffling for me, right? Um, you know, without getting into too, spoilers too much, uh, Icarus's uh, resolution after the climax of the film and how he deals with everything that was okay, a bit of a weird left turn um and then also you know the resolution to kingo and the choices he made like was there any resolution emotional resolution or payoff to all that i don't really think so thematically i got what they were trying to put down you know something about crisis of faith something about you know um utilitarianism and something about you know valuing life and and so on but again it was very tell not so right for example you know one of the messages was humanity is worth saving and you know they didn't really show why humanity was worth saving. If anything, they focused on all of the negative things that humanity did. And not, they didn't really have like this, this thing that's like, this is why humanity is worth saving, right? I think, you know, if they had gone full space, and, and of course it also, um, you know, suffered from third act Marvel CG syndrome as well. So honestly, if they gone full art house, like Space Odyssey leaning into the millennia old aliens bit, or maybe even Scorsese's silence, you know, into the crisis of faith dilemma that i think would have been a better movie but they straddled both ends of that art house blockbuster divide spectrum and it didn't really work have an identity as either as a result overall it's an ambitious film good not great though sometime in about the two and a half to three star range out of five um bottom half of the mcu for sure for me Oh, but also that post-credit scene didn't feel like it was directed by Chloe Zhao. felt like it was something out of james gunn or taiko waititi just what? Uh, you, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. I have no idea where they're going after this. Anyway, with that, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Sue me ideas for what else has to cover at boxofficewatchpodcast at zemo.com uh, or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play. Subscribe, review, or tell a friend. Any of that helps. Even consider supporting us on Patreon, which I think not, makes me not only this show, but all the other podcasts I work on. Links to all of that will be in the show notes. Numbers you know so come from TheNumbers.com, intro and outro music from Kevin MacLeod, his stuff is at IncompetentAlfilmMusic.io, editing production by Ninsboy Media. Till next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes on. Yeah.